And during that time, the olives were pressed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when the olives were pressed and crushed, the precious oil came forth from them. And we identify the Garden of Gethsemane as a place of pressing, pressing and crushing. You'll remember that the plan of the enemy was crushed in Gethsemane. The plan of the enemy was to uh, keep Jesus from the cross. You remember last week from Genesis chapter 3 that we saw that God made a declaration of war upon the enemy and said that Messiah would crush his head. So the goal of the enemy was to keep Jesus from the cross where that crushing would take place. And that decisive blow was made to the enemy when Jesus said, Father, your will be done. And he willingly went to the cross to lay down his life. We saw unfold in the Garden of Gethsemane the battle of the will and that Jesus won the battle of the will. And then he went to the cross, and the cross is where the power of sin is broken. And so in our daily lives, we will experience Gethsemanes, gardens of Gethsemane, the battle of the will to do wrong or to do right, to obey Christ or to deny Christ. We saw both unfolding in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus submitting to the will of the Father. Peter denying Jesus Christ. And so in your daily Gethsemane, you need to know that Jesus won the battle for you, that we might have victory in our own decisions. And by the way, the way of victory is always the cross. The only way to victory for Jesus from Gethsemane was the way of the cross. When he yielded and said, Father, your will be done with regards to the cross. That was the victory. And so it will be in our individual lives. There's so much that pulls upon us as we go to make decisions ideas of the flesh, what other people expect, what other people want, and what the Lord would be saying. And if you are ever confused in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the battle of the wheels, which way do I go? The way to victory is always the way of the cross. Jesus said, if anybody wants to come after me, they shall pick up the cross and deny themselves. The way of the cross is self-denial. It's going with God's plan, God's will, above and beyond our own. You'll remember that last week as we talked about the Garden of Gethsemane, we talked about those three disciples who were beckoned deeper into the garden than the rest, and they were asked by the Lord to pray. And I shared with you that as a congregation, I believe that we have been called further into the garden by the Lord, that we've been called to a place of prayer, a place of intercession. We realized that there was a young lady in our community just days ago that took her life. The police informed me, the sheriffs informed me that this week there was a girl who was a friend of that girl that also tried to take her life and failed. Thank you, Lord. There was a young man in Santa Barbara that took his life. And then just the other morning, here in our town on Malibu, was a homicide. What's, what's going on in our community? What are you doing about it? What are you going to do about it? Reality Carpentry and then you as individuals. Kids are killing themselves. People are killing people in this town where it's not supposed to happen. What are you going to do about it? The weapon that we have is one that is divinely powerful to tear down the strongholds of the enemy. That is the weapon of prayer. Are you engaged in the battle in intercessory prayer? That's why we've got a prayer meeting several times throughout the week so that we can come and do battle on behalf of the lives of young men and women in our community. But you understand that prayer and intercession is a selfless act. 
It's a self-sacrifice. You come to intercede on behalf of others. It's a labor, prayer is, and it's a work, and you're doing it for others. It yields tremendous fruit, but it is, once again, the way of the cross. It is a way of self-denial. I'm laying down my desires, my will, my time, and my agenda to come and intercede on behalf of the community. How many more kids need to lose their lives until we start to pray? How many homicides will there be in Carpinteria until we pray? What are we doing? We have a church of almost 1,000 people here. We have a prayer meeting on Tuesday nights with about 30 people. That's wrong. It's wrong. I'm a part of the church too. I'm not pointing the finger. It's here. It's us. We're wrong. The Lord is calling us further into the garden, church. Will we heed the call of intercessory prayer? I invite you on Monday nights at 6 o'clock where we will be praying specifically for the youth of Carpenter. We'll be starting that prayer meeting this Monday for the first time doing battle for the youth. It'll be a sacrifice. You'll sacrifice your time, your spiritual energy to invest in the kingdom of God around you. So the way of victory in the Garden of Decision is always a cross, selflessness, self-denial. Contrast that with selfishness. Peter Peter was selfish. The Lord said to him, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Stay here and watch. And three times the Lord left and Peter fell asleep and he came back and each time, Peter, what are you doing? We're here in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the morning of the cross. Pray. And every time Peter refused to do it. Peter was not an evil guy. Peter was not a horrible guy. He was not a rotten guy. He was very normal. He was very much you and I. In the sense that when the Lord said pray, he said, but I'm sleepy but my body, but I would rather do this, but I've got other things to do. That was the essence of Peter's failure in the garden. It was selfishness as opposed to selflessness. And what we see in Jesus is selflessness. And thank you that he was because that meant the cross for you and I. What was worse than the situation with Peter was Judas. Judas. It was Judas's love for the things of the world, namely money, that led him to deny the Lord. He betrayed betray the Lord, excuse me. He betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. In John chapter 12, it says that at the Last Supper, Satan entered Judas. That was a heartbreaking passage. He had walked with the Lord for three years. The Lord had called him friend. The Lord had allowed him to share in experiences. And he gave himself over because of the love of money. And Satan entered him, and he would betray the Lord. Listen, just be aware of the temptation of the things of the world. I am possibly more susceptible to that than anyone here. I love dirt bikes and surfboards and all those sort of fun. I'm just like a little boy. I love those things. And if the Lord didn't keep me in check and my wife didn't keep me in check, I could become consumed in surfboards and dirt bikes and things like that. That's the way of Judas. There comes a time where we have to say, I'm leaving behind the child to sings and I'm looking into the kingdom of God. I'm going to press into the kingdom of God and the things of God and seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto us. And that's the battle of the will that unfolds in the Garden of Gethsemane. Am I sleepy in my flesh and refusing to pray or am I too concerned with the things of the world to be loyal to Jesus Christ? And I believe, Reality Carpenteria, that Jesus is calling us into Gethsemane to the way of the cross. And that's where we pick it up in Mark 14, verse 43. It says, and immediately while Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, he immediately went to Jesus, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. We see here in our text that Judas comes and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Now, a kiss was not too out of the ordinary. Um, disciples would often kiss their rabbis on the cheek or on the hand as a show of respect or a show of affection in the first century. It was not horribly out of the normal. And it was nighttime, remember. Otherwise, the chief priests and elders and their servants would have been able to recognize Jesus, who had been in Jerusalem teaching on the Temple Mount all week long. But because it was night, they thought there might be some confusion. And so Judas said, here's a signal. Unless you're not, in case you're not able to tell who he is, the one that I kiss, that's Jesus. You arrest him, you take him away. And so he comes up and he kisses him. Not out of the ordinary for a disciple to do to a rabbi. But the way he kissed Jesus was very unordinary. In verse 45, that verb kissed is very strong. It's the intensive compound form of the verb. It's the Greek word katafileo. Here's what it means. To kiss eagerly affectionately or repeatedly. When Judas came up to betray Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, he began to kiss him fervently, eagerly, affectionately, repeatedly. Now, that was not normal. We begin to think, what is going on here? This is the betrayer, and he is kissing Jesus here to betray him, but with a sense of passion. Was there some underlying affection in the heart of Judas? Had Judas walked with the Lord for three years and now at the moment of betrayal realizes this is a wonderful man. He is the God man. I have a sense of love for him. And as if some sort of last goodbye kiss kisses him in that way? Or was it just the sickest form of hypocrisy? Oh, Rabbi, making it very clear who he was. What was going on in the heart and the mind of Judas? We're not very sure, but we are absolutely positive what was going on in the heart of Jesus. We're told in the parallel account of Matthew 26 in verse 50 that when Judas approached him, Jesus looked at him and said, friend. Up until the very last moment of his betrayal, Jesus was saying to Judas, friend. Extending the hand of relationship. You'll remember that we talked about that leading up to uh, Judas' betrayal and the revelation thereof at the Last Supper, Jesus had mentioned it many times. There is one among you who will betray me, he would say to the disciples over and over, as if he was warning Judas. Judas, don't do this. Judas, here is a chance for repentance. Here is a way out. Extending the hand of relationship. And doesn't the Lord do that for you and I all the time? We find ourselves in some horrible temptation. We find ourselves going down a road that we know is wrong. We know it's leading toward destruction. And the whole time the Lord is saying, don't. Don't, that leads towards destruction. Don't do that. And right up until the very moment of committing that sin, the Lord is saying, friend, here's the way out. Come, don't do this. When Judas came to betray him with a kiss, Jesus called him friend. We don't know exactly what was going on in the heart of Judas with that passionate kiss, whether it was hypocrisy or some sort of affection, but we do know that Judas felt remorse for what he did. In the parallel account, again, in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, it says this. Then when Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse 
and return the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. That's your problem. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. It's absolutely tragic. Judas felt remorse, but there was no repentance. He did what he could to make himself feel better. He threw the silver away. I don't want this dirty money. I don't want this blood money. I've really blown it here. He did what he could to kind of make himself feel better, but there was no coming to God with a genuine change of mind. There was no real repentance in Judas. We see this spoken about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. We have it on the PowerPoint for you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul had written some scathing things to the church there in Corinth. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll find out that the church in Corinth was a mess. There was all sorts of divisions, and there was sexual immorality, and there was abuses, and Christians were suing each other, and there's all sorts of sick stuff going on. And he wrote them 1 Corinthians, really busting in them on those things and using some strong language. And there was also a book that is lost between 1 and 2 Corinthians. But then in 2 Corinthians, he talks about having written them and busted them on their stuff. And we pick it up in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 7. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Judas had the sorrow of the world. He didn't sorrow to the point of repentance. There wasn't repentance that didn't bring or repentance that would bring a lack of regret. He had regret and remorse and that I'm sorry sort of attitude. But not repentance according to the will of God, the word of God, the way of God. And there is a difference, isn't there? When I was a kid and I would get in trouble, I would say to my dad, sorry. And he'd say, no, you're not. I used to hate that. I would get so mad when he would say that. Sorry, Dad. No, you're not. That made me so mad. Why? Because he was absolutely right. I wasn't really sorry. There's a little bit of remorse and kind of a a regretful uh, feeling that I got caught, but there was no actual lamenting in my heart, no actual repentance. And that's what was happening in Judas. It was just kind of, here's what I can do to make myself feel better, and there was no repentance. Otherwise, he would have ended up like Peter. Peter denied the Lord, but there was repentance in Peter. The fruit of the fact is John 21, where the Lord meets him on the beach and restores him. The Lord will in no way turn away anyone that comes to him with an attitude of repentance. In fact, Peter told the nation of Israel after Pentecost that times of refreshing come from being in the presence of the Lord when we repent. Judas refused to repent. Peter had godly sorrow that led to repentance. Be very careful in your life of mere, I'm sorry, God. Look for true repentance. Luke chapter 3, verse 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That if we've truly repented, there ought to be some fruit in our life, a changed life. Not just, I'm sorry, and I do it again. I know we all fall into that, but it's not right. 
And the Bible says very clearly that that leads to death. Verse 46 now of our text, moving on. And they laid hands on him and they seized him. Here is the arrest of Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, the morning of the cross. Now, John in his parallel account gives us some details that aren't included here in Mark. I want you to look at this in John chapter 18, verses 4 through 8. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, that is, those who were coming to arrest him, who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. Now, in the text of the New American Standard there, it adds the word he. Notice in the Bible that it's in italics, meaning that the translators added it for clarification. But what Jesus actually said was not, I am he. He simply said, I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus, the Nazarene, I am. I want you to notice the result. Judas, who was also betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Hundreds of men were there, according to the text. Hundreds of men came with Judas, and they say, where's Jesus, the Nazarene? I am, boom. Hundreds of men fall to the ground on their back. Verse 7. Again, therefore, he asked them, who do you look for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is making a clear profession of his deity. He is very clearly, without argumentation, without exception, without mistake, claiming to be God in the flesh. He had already done it in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What is he referring to, this I am thing? He's identifying himself with the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses was commissioned by God to deliver Israel. And Mo, being afraid to go, said, Who will I say sent me? And the Lord said, You shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. I am. In Greek, when Jesus said it, ego ami. That verb ami is the basic verb for to exist. In other words, I am the one who exists, has sent you. That was the name that God chose to identify himself by to the nation of Israel, that authoritative name that would signal that he would be the deliverer, Moses, commissioned by God. And now Jesus says when they come to arrest him, I am. It is a very clear claim to deity. I get so upset when people say Jesus never claimed to be God. You go to share the Lord with people and talk about the deity of Christ. Jesus never claimed to be God. I say, you've never read the Bible. If you've read the Bible, you could never say that unless your brain seeped out your ears. It's impossible. He has very clearly claimed to be God. He said in John 8, as we read, I am. He says it here again, I am, identifying himself with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the Trinity from Exodus 3.14. And I think... Judging from the result, it's very clear what he was saying. When they fell backwards and were knocked over, it was an expression that he was God. Verse 47 now. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now who is that? Peter. We remember from our previous study that that was Peter. And the slave of the high priest, his name was Malchus, good job. And so Peter here lops off the ear of Malchus. And we uh, sort of deduce that Peter is acting in the flesh. 
You'll remember that Peter had been overly self-confident from our our sermon, Five Steps to Misery. Jesus said, all of you will fall away from me. And Peter said, everyone else might, Lord, but not me. I'm willing to go to prison and to death with you. He was overly self-confident. And then there was a degree of prayerlessness in his life. Jesus took him further into the garden and said, now pray. In the midst of this battle, pray. And Peter refused to pray and he slept. And so when the difficult situation came around, In the heat of the moment, at the crux, at the boiling point, Peter immediately responds in the flesh. Can anybody identify? Can anybody relate with Peter? In the heat of the moment, bam, your first reaction is totally of the flesh. I've done it a million times. I wish I would have remembered Proverbs. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But so many times, because we're not in that sweet communion with the Lord, we're not walking in the Spirit, we're not keeping ourselves in the place of being dependent upon God and praying to God, that when stuff gets tough, we act out in the flesh. And when we do that, we're going to make a mess. Namely, an ear on the ground with blood squirting from the guy's head. What a mess. Thankfully, the Lord came to clean up the mess. The Lord, in another gospel account, picks up the ear, puts it back on his head and says, Peter, what are you doing? Don't you know that I could ask the Father and he would send me 12 legions of angels? But Peter, it is the will of the Father that I go to the cross. This is the second time that Peter was thinking the thoughts of man and not the thoughts of God. Remember in Caesarea Philippi? Caesarea Philippi, he said, Peter, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Messiah, the Son of God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he began to reveal to Peter the cross. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. I will be nailed to the cross, but after three days I'll rise again. And Peter said, Lord, may this never be. Very clear in the original Greek, they took him aside and began to rebuke him. Lord, stop talking like that. What was the Lord's response? Get behind me, Satan. He was thinking the thoughts of the enemy and not the thoughts of God. He was just in the flesh. It happened so quickly to you and I. That's why we've got to be very careful that we're walking in the Spirit. Martin Luther said, I check myself every five minutes to make sure that I'm walking in the Spirit. I feel like I need to check myself every five seconds. Peter responds in the flesh. Verse 48. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has happened that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. So they came to arrest him like a robber. Jesus sort of says, it's interesting since I was with you all week long teaching on the Temple Mount, but this is that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Once again, expressing that in the midst of this battle in the garden, God is absolutely in control and that the cross had been prophesied. Realize that the cross is not an afterthought. God often does that with our lives. You know, like we sort of mess up a situation and we just make this huge mess and God redeems it and brings good out of it. Romans eight twenty eight ought to be your life verse. It's my life verse. I'm such a mess maker. That God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not so with the cross. It was not an afterthought. It was not God redeeming a bad situation. It's not as though Jesus, you know, said too much and he got himself in trouble and he got arrested and oh no, he got nailed to the cross and God says, oh, I'll bring some good out of it. It was God's plan from the very beginning. All the way in the book of Exodus when he was going to bring him out of Egypt. You remember that they, the, they slaughtered the Passover lamb at their doors and they would put the blood on the lintels of their doors. And as they put it up here and here and here, it would form a perfect cross, foreshadowing. Isaiah 53, 700 years before the cross, prophesying about it. 
Psalm 22, 1,000 years before the cross. It was prophesied. Numbers chapter 21, Israel was disobedient to God. God sent fiery serpents or poisonous serpents among them. The serpents bit the Israelites and they began to die. Moses began to intercede for them, and God said, here's the remedy. Make for yourself a standard, Moses, which was a vertical pole with a horizontal pole placed on it like that, by which the tribes of Israel would hang their flags. It was a flagpole that looked like that. He said, make for yourself a standard, and then make a bronze serpent and put it upon the standard. The bronze serpent being a picture of sin. Making a sink of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He put this picture of sin upon that standard, that cross, and when any Israelite looked at it, he was immediately healed of the effects of sin, which were the snakes biting them in the death. It was a foreshadowing of the cross. God was screaming to humanity that the cross would be our redemption. And so Jesus is simply saying here, these things are happening that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Where are we? Verse 50. Verse 50 is heartbreaking. And they all left him and fled. He had told them, you will all forsake and abandon me tonight. And they said, no, Lord, we won't. And Peter most of all. And they all forsook and abandoned him. But check out this guy, verses 51 and 52. And a certain young man who was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. So we have this guy who shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane with a bed sheet on, and he's following Jesus as he's being arrested. He's following along behind him. Who is this little naked mystery man? Well, it says a certain young man. When that phrase is used certain, it, it denotes something peculiar, something particular, something we ought to know about. When it says young man there, that phrase in the Greek means a young man from the ages of 24 to 40, in the prime of his life. And so this young man, some begin to surmise that it may have been Mark for a few reasons. Number one, Mark is the only gospel account that mentions it. It's not in Matthew, it's not in Luke, it's not in John. It's only here. Mark says there is a certain little naked guy in the prime of his life. Um, In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, Peter has just been miraculously released from prison. And he goes to meet up with the church. And where is the church gathered? They are gathered in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, praying. So we begin to put some things together. We begin to think, okay, there's this cat named John Mark in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. We think he's the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. The early church would gather in his house and pray. Must have been a large upper room. Reminds us of the early upper room at Pentecost. So here's a scenario that we dream up in our little minds. The upper room during the Last Supper is that of John Mark's. It's his family home. John Mark perhaps is downstairs while the supper is taking place. Judas leaves to go betray the Lord. And in the meantime, Jesus and the disciples head to Gethsemane. When Judas comes with the rulers and the leaders and that little army there, he comes, of course, looking at the upper room for them because that's the last place he saw Jesus. Let's go to the upper room. He must be there. We begin to think that maybe John Mark saw that Judas came with this army to betray the Lord and to arrest him. He gets up out of bed and he follows them to the Garden of Gethsemane and there he is in his sheet lurking in the shadows and he sees the arrest of the Lord and he wants to follow him. He wants to see it through and they go to seize him and they rip the sheet from him and he runs away naked. Kind of dreamed it up. 
But it's possible. It's possible that this is Mark. Or it's possible that it's nobody. Nevertheless, there is this guy and he has a sheet. He's in the garden and he escapes naked. I think it's cool. Verse 53. (laughs) Nobody else does. And they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. So now they lead him away to his first trial. As it unfolds over the next couple of weeks, I'll share with you that that morning or late at that night, whatever you want, however you want to say it, Jesus had a series of six trials leading up to the cross. And this was the first one. The first trial is before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling party uh, in Israel. They oversaw uh, Jewish legal affairs and religious affairs for the nation of Israel. It's made up of 71 elders from the nation. They would meet on the Temple Mount in a place called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. That is a chamber hewn out of stone. The 71 would meet in there and deal with issues of Jewish law and religion. By way of the fact that this meeting took place in the middle of the night and at the high priest's house, notice it says that Peter followed him into the courtyard of the high priest. We know that this was an illegal hearing. They're trying a capital punishment case here. They're going to accuse Jesus of something that would bring upon him capital punishment. But they meet covertly, secretly in the middle of the night, not where the ruling party is supposed to meet, in a meeting that is unannounced. And so we see the Sanhedrin trying to condemn Jesus at an illegal trial. In the midst of it, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter is there warming himself at the enemy's fire. We'll remember that that was step three, thank you, to five steps to misery. Remember that sermon two weeks ago? He was overly self-confident. He was prayerless. And then he was warming himself at the enemy's fire, consorting with the very people that would put the Lord to death. So now we see this illegal trial unfold. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus and put him to death. They weren't finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and yet their testimony was not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. You remember that Jesus said something along those lines. And in the Gospel of John, it's clarified for us that he was speaking about his body. He was speaking about his death and then his subsequent resurrection. And they take his words out of context to charge him with saying that he actually meant he would destroy the temple and rebuild it without hands in three days. Also embedded within that accusation is that they were saying, hey, he's claiming to be the Messiah. Because all of Judaism, even to this very moment in history, expects that when Messiah will come, he will lead Israel in the building of the temple spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 47. And so they're leveling a charge against him that, hey, this guy thinks he's a Messiah. It's exactly what they're trying to get him on. We see it in the next verse. 59, and even in this respect, their their testimony was not consistent. And the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned him, saying, do you make no answer? What is, or what is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? So they ask him point blank. 
And they're not able to find any fault in Jesus, and so people are coming forward and they're telling lies about him, and they're making things up about him. Very important doctrinal point that I hope you caught there. The sinlessness of Jesus. Nobody could level an accusation against him. It is very important doctrinally that we hold to the fact that Jesus was without sin. Speaks about it in Hebrews 7.26. Hebrews 7.26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent and undefiled, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Listen. If Jesus ever sinned, then he could never be the Savior. Then he would have to die to pay the price for his own sins. Therefore, he could never pay for our sins. Jesus dying upon the cross was the just dying for the unjust, the righteous dying for the unrighteous. If he had any sin of his own, he could never have atoned for our sins. And yet we see these blasphemous movies come out, The Last Temptation of Christ. We read articles and periodicals like Newsweek. Was Jesus married? He had several wives. He slept with Mary, so on and so forth. These things are blasphemous and God have mercy on the soul that makes such trash. But God have mercy on us if we don't become contenders for the faith. When these things are said, when the person of Jesus, when someone tries to cast aspersion upon him and his character, we've got to stand up and say, no, Wait a minute, that is incorrect. Let's read the historical accounts. Jesus was without sin. If you aren't willing to defend that, then you're not willing to be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian unless Jesus was absolutely sinless. A doctrinal foundation that we must uphold, that we must teach, and that we must defend in a society that wants to destroy that truth. Notice that they were bringing false testimony against them. Here we're going to see again that this trial was illegal and that those holding it violated Jewish law. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verses 16 through 21, it said that if anybody gives false testimony in a Jewish trial against his brother, the penalty is that he should be put to death. They took it very serious. If anybody bears false witness against his brother in a trial, then he should be put to death. And yet what we see here is that people are continually coming forward with false witness and that their testimony is contradicting one another. The Sanhedrin, as a governing body of Israel, should have stopped the trial, declared it a mistrial, and punished those people who had falsely testified. They didn't do any of those things. So what? Why do you bring this up? It's hot in here. I'm sweating like a little piglet. What, what do you t- why, why do I care about that? I want you to see as these trials of the Messiah unfold that at every turn he stands as absolutely righteous and blameless and that every time humanity has an opportunity in these trials, they will err. They will sin. But it is for those sins that Jesus will go to the cross to forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they do. And so it's an illegal trial with illegal procedures. Verse 60, again, it's very important. The high priest stood up saying, don't you make any answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? When Jesus didn't make any answer here, he fulfilled prophecy. 700 years earlier, Isaiah 53, verse 7. Isaiah 53, verse 7, 700 years prior. Speaking of the Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. False accusations. Jesus remained silent as a fulfillment of prophecy. Now it gets tricky. 
And verse 61, the high priest is going to put him under oath. It doesn't say it in verse 61, but it says it in Matthew 26 in the parallel count. In Matthew 26, 63, it says that the high priest put him under oath and said, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Here's where it gets very complicated. According to the book of Leviticus, chapter 5, verse 1, if anybody was put under oath in a Jewish trial, they had to tell the truth or they would bear the guilt. According to the law now, Jesus, though he had remained silent up until this point, had to tell the truth, had to reveal his identity. He was put under oath by the high priest. And so then he lets him have it. He says in verse 62, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is very careful to obey the minutia of the law because it says in the New Testament that if we're guilty of one part of the law, we are guilty of the entire law. If Jesus had been put under oath and he remained silent, he would be guilty of Leviticus 5.1. He would be a sinner. He would no longer be able to atone for our sins. This is no human intelligence. This is not Johnny Cochran uh, defending him. This is the living God absolutely in control of the situation, proving once again that his son is righteous. And so he declares it. He says, I am. And then he says something amazing. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's quoting there from two passages in the Old Testament. He's quoting from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel is given a vision of the Messiah and the kingdom that he inherits. It says in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now, if you read the gospel accounts, Jesus' favorite terminology for himself was son of man. What does that mean? Son of Joseph? Is it speaking of his humanity? Not at all. It's speaking of his deity and the fact that he is a Messiah who would inherit the kingdom. He gets it from Daniel 7. I saw one like the Son of Man, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. When the high priest said, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? He said, I am. And I am the one that has been given dominion that will inherit the kingdom that every nation will bow down to. Inherit in that statement was all those things. And the high priest absolutely knew what Jesus was saying at that moment. It was a very clear claim of his deity. Secondly, or in the first part of that verse, he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, where he says, You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. A messianic psalm, it says, The Lord says to my Lord... Wait a minute, the Lord is speaking to the Lord? The Lord is speaking to the Lord? Two different words in Hebrew. The first one for Lord is the Hebrew Yahweh, the ineffable uh, name of God. The second one is Adon, which means master. My Lord is Adonai. So Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet speaks of the deity of the Messiah. He's inheriting the kingdom, every enemy being put in subjection to him. When he answered the high priest, he said, I am God in the flesh. I am the Messiah. Every kingdom shall bow. Every enemy shall be put under my feet. Quite a declaration. 
Look how the high priest uh, responds, verse 63. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further deed do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So the high priest hears it, and he rips his clothes. In Jewish culture, they did that as a, uh, a picture of, of mourning or protesting or being heartbroken or being thoroughly upset about something. They would tear their clothes. They would put ashes upon their head. They would put sackcloth upon themselves and they would weep and they would mourn or they would lament or they would protest. It's normal in the Jewish culture. But we're told in Leviticus chapter 21 verse 10 that the high priest is never to tear his clothes. It wasn't for the high priest. It was for the rest of Israel, not for the high priest. When the high priest tore his clothes here, in that verse, he was violating Jewish law once again in Leviticus 21.10. Once again showing us that not only did Jesus fulfill prophecy, but he obeyed perfectly and he stood in the midst of sinners ready to save. And the next verse drives it home. Verse 65. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. Other gospel accounts tell us that they said, prophesy, who's going to hit you next? And the officers received him with slaps in the face, or it can also be translated with rods across the face. Bamboo rods across his face, blindfolded. Have you ever been hit when you can't see it coming? These are not like you and I hitting someone. These are Roman soldiers at the peak of physical condition, trained to be able to maim other human beings, spitting upon him, blindfolding him, beating him in the face when he can't see and saying, Jesus, if you're a prophet, why don't you prophesy? Who's going to hit you now? And then slapping him across the face with a bamboo rod. I want you to understand that at that moment, Jesus could have prophesied. He could have said, John's going to hit me next. Judah will hit me next. Benjamin's going to hit me now. Isaac is going to hit me now. Bartholomew's going to hit me next. He knew everything and he knew all of their sins and he stood there and he took it for you and I. Even though he had all of the authority and had just proclaimed his deity, God took humiliation that he might pray for, pay for my sin and for your sin. It's unbelievable. It's unfathomable to have that much authority, that much power to know everything and to stand there and let your own creation spit upon you, mock you, and beat you senseless to the point that Isaiah 52 says he was marred beyond recognition. It's the very definition of meekness. Jesus was meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek does not mean weak. In England, if you go to the horse races, the horse that wins the race is called the meek horse. It means that he was the strongest horse that was most submitted to his master. Meekness is power in submission. Jesus had all the power, all the authority. It had all been given to him. It was submitted to the will of the Father. He endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him, which was my forgiveness and your forgiveness. And it's absolutely unbelievable. By the way, when they beat him at that trial, that too was against Jewish law. 
By the way, as they beat Jesus Christ, Peter was down below in the courtyard and he heard every slap. He heard every blow. He heard every wad of spit that was thrown in the face of Jesus Christ. And he denied him still. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you too were with Jesus in Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither knew, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. And the maid saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. We won't talk about the denial. We already talked about it two weeks ago when we looked at five steps to misery. But I will remind you that when Peter began to curse and swear, he didn't use foul language. He said something to the effect of, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus Christ. All the while, he is hearing the blows that are being given to the face of his Lord and his Savior and his best friend. And he stands in denial. Church, be aware of prayerlessness. Be aware of covetousness and flirting with the things of the world, warming ourselves at the enemy's fire. Be aware of these things because the world is hurling insult at Jesus Christ. The enemy has obviously declared war against the young people in this community, bringing them to the point of taking their lives. And we need to stand for and confess the Lord and pray that he would heal our land. Lord, we thank you that you took every one of those fists for us. That even those people that hit you, you would take those nails for them. God, we thank you for that amazing love. And we just pray together that if there's anyone in here that has not recognized you as Lord, They've heard today that you fulfilled prophecy and you obeyed perfectly. Is anybody that has not recognized you as the only unique Savior, I pray now that they would. I ask, Lord, that you bring him to a place of repentance, that you would take him beyond, I'm sorry and I know it's wrong, but you would take him to a place of true repentance, doing an about face, turning away from sin and turning to a God that loves them and wants to save them willingly lay down his life. Thank you, Jesus, that you did this for me. You did this for us. If you are recognizing for the first time today that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, the only unique son of God, the one that died upon the cross for our sins, if you're recognizing that today, you also need to realize that you're a sinner, that you, just like those who had Jesus on trial, have made mistakes contradicted the word of God and the will of God and that today you need to repent. Repentance is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. According to the Bible, when we repent, we're forgiven and we come into the presence of God and refreshing comes into our lives. Yet the slate is wiped clean that you're given a second chance, a brand new chance on life and you're given eternal life. But you've got to make the decision. You've got to come recognizing who Jesus is, realizing that he died upon the cross for your sins and being willing to receive him as your Lord and Savior. You've got to ask. He extends it to you today. If you want that, you just say, God, I'm wrong. You're right. Jesus, thank you that you died for me. Save me and forgive me. 
You pray that in sincerity from your heart, God will hear you. He will forgive you. He'll start a new work in your life. He'll remove condemnation and shame and guilt. You enter into a relationship with the living God. And then he opens up the way to himself for you. And then in time of need, you can enter into the throne of grace and receive help. You can go beyond the things of this world right into the presence of God, having the sin problem removed. Christians, as was spoken of last week, if there's anything that you need to be repenting of, now's the time. This isn't the season to play games with God. We're in an incredibly intense and heartbreaking season in our community. It's time to get real. It's time to seek first the kingdom of God. It's time to get real.